Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This uh, Shabbat, Jews throughout the world will read Parashat Noah, the section of Genesis known as Noah. It begins in Genesis 9 and concludes in chapter 11, verse 32. As many of you know as regular listeners, each week a different section of Torah is read in the synagogue. The first three aliyot, the first three sections of seven, are read on Monday and Thursday, and then all seven sections are read on Shabbat morning. Here's Noah in a nutshell. God instructs Noah, the only righteous man in his generation, to build a large wooden teva, an ark, coated within and without with pitch. A great deluge, says God, will wipe out all from the face of the earth, but the ark will float upon the water, sheltering Noah and his family and two members, male and female, of each animal species. Rain falls for 40 days and nights, and the waters churn for 150 days more before calming and beginning to recede. The ark settles, as the Torah says, on Mount Ararat, and from its singular window, Noah dispatches a raven and then a series of doves to see if the waters were abated from the face of the earth. When the ground dries completely, tradition says that it's exactly one solar year after the onset of the flood, God commands Noah to exit the ark and repopulate the earth. Upon exiting the ark, Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifices to God. God swears never again to destroy all of humanity because of their deeds and sets the rainbow as a testimony of his new covenant with humanity. God also commands Noah regarding the sacredness of life. Murder is, for the first time in the Torah, deemed a capital offense, and while human beings are now permitted to eat the meat of animals, humanity is forbidden to eat flesh or blood taken from a living animal. These laws, as articulated in Parashat Noah, become the foundation for some of the laws of Kashrut, namely the Jewish laws regarding how to prepare ritually slaughtered meat. Noah plants a vineyard and becomes drunk on its produce. Two of Noah's sons, Shem and Yephat, are blessed for covering up their father's nakedness, while their third son, Ham, is punished for taking advantage of Noah's debasement. The descendants of Noah remain a single people with a single language and culture for 10 generations, the Torah tells us. Then they defy their creator by building a great tower to symbolize their own invincibility. 
God confuses their language so that one does not comprehend the tongue of the other according to the text, causing them to abandon their project and disperse across the face of the earth, splitting into 70 nations. The parasha of Noah concludes with a chronology of 10 generations from Noah to Avram. Later, Avram will be called Abraham, and it will be his journey from his place of Ur of Chazdim to Haran that will begin the journey of the Jewish people, the Israelite people, in their relationship with God. Well, that's the story in the nutshell. Now, it has become traditional on Jewish faith and Jewish facts for me to interview individuals about the varieties of meanings found in the parashiot. This morning, I'm going to interview a variety of individuals. However, I will do so from their individual writings and identify how these great biblical commentators have tried to understand the some of the essential issues found in the story of Noah. So let me begin with the story of Noah and the ark in the Bible as enunciated by one of the great Hasidic movements in North America and the world called Chabad. Chabad was originally known as Lubavitch, coming from the town of Lubavitch in the Ukraine, and the founder of the Lubavitch Hasidic movement was known as the Lubavitcher Rebbe. There were seven iterations of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The most famous was the last, known as Menachem Schneerson, who made the transition for this group of Hasidic Jews following the Shoah to a powerful international force for outreach towards Jews who are lapsed in their foundations and their participation in tradition. The Hasidic movement known as Chabad now writes the following about the story of Noah and the Ark in the Bible. The great flood known as the Mabul in Hebrew was sent by God in year 1656 of creation, which they identify as 2105 before the common era, to cleanse the earth of mankind's corrupt ways. The only survivors of the great flood were Noah, his family, and representatives of every living species who found refuge in a designated ark. The world preceding the flood was marked by abundance, health, and prosperity. The average human lifespan lasted many hundreds of years, and the climate across the globe was temperate and unpleasant. Unfortunately, humanity took advantage of this blissful lifestyle, and corruption became rampant. With the exception of a few select individuals, society indulged in theft, idolatry, and incest. All this came to a head in the year 1536 of creation, 2225 before the Common Era, when God first foretold the events that would come to pass. Now, I would remind you as you listen that much of what is said here 
is Midrashic homiletical interpretation based on the story in the text. Chabad goes on to tell us that scripture tells us that Noah, a ninth generation descendant of Adam and Eve, was a righteous and upright man. Those are the words of the Torah. God informed Noah of his plans to eradicate humanity due to their evil ways and instructed him to build an ark in which he and his family were to take refuge. Joining them in the ark would be a select few creatures of every species, other than fish, which miraculously survived the flood unscathed. Two from every non-kosher animal, and seven, or 14, of every kosher animal. Yes, it's true that the Torah had not yet told us about the nature of kashrut. God gave exact instructions how the ark was to be built. It was to be crafted of gopher wood and sealed from both within and without with pitch. It was to comprise three stories— the top for Noah and his family, the middle for animals, and the bottom for refuse. It was to measure 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in width, and 30 cubits in height. The ark was illuminated by a tzohar, which was either a window through which light shone from the outside, which one might ask if that happened, how, did there, how was there light during the 40 days of rain, or a radiant precious stone. The Hebrew is a little unclear at this point. The ark took Noah no less than 120 years to build, allowing for plenty of time for onlookers to query his actions, to be told of the impending calamity and to change their ways. Unfortunately, such repentance never came to pass. Finally, in the year 1656, After creation, the day arrived when everything would change. On the 17th day of the month of Cheshvon, that's the Hebrew month of Cheshvon, rain began to fall. In addition, jets of streaming water shot forth from the depths of the earth. The downpour continued for 40 days and 40 nights until the face of the earth was entirely submerged, covering the summits of the highest mountains with water 15 cubits deep. Finally, the rain subsided, but the waters continued to churn for another 150 days. To determine the extent of the water's retreat, Noah sent out a raven, but the raven did not fly that far and merely circled the ark. Next, Noah sent out a dove for for a total of three missions. The first time the dove left the ark, it returned without any results. The second time it returned with an olive leaf in its beak, indicating that new growth had become to sprout. And the final time it did not return, having found rest outside the confines of the ark. Finally, on the first day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which today is known as Rosh Hashanah, the water completely sublimed subsided. Close to two months later, on the 27th day of Cheshvan, the ground fully dried, allowing Noah and the rest of the ark's inhabitants to emerge. That is how Chabad 
spoke about the uh, Ark and its legacy. It is interesting that, um, as previously mentioned this morning, this was an act of cosmic wrath. But Lubavitch Hasidism notes that the foremost energy that guides the cosmos is that of chesed, goodness and compassion. Wrath is incompatible with the spiritual posture. There is some, clearly something much more sublime in the count of the flood. And so Hasidic teachings describe the flood as a cleansing process. The waters of the flood, according to Hasidism, are like the waters of a ritual bath, a mikvah, where the waters spiritually cleanse the one who enters it. The word similarly received a spiritual cleansing, setting the course of history on a course of hope and purpose. Just as a mikvah must contain a certain amount of water, 40 seya, an ancient measure of volume, so did the rain of the flood last for 40. The two numbers are equivalent. Well, that's the Hasidic telling of the story. It gives you an insight into one very spiritualized group of Jews trying to understand the story. Now I want to share with you the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Sachs had been the chief rabbi of the British Isles and now is a well-known teacher and writer. So here's what he writes. The parasha of Noah brings to a close the 11 chapters that precede the call to Abraham and the beginning of the special relationship between Abraham, Abraham's descendants, and God. During these 11 chapters, the Torah gives prominence to four stories, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the generation of the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Each of these stories involves an interaction between God and humanity. Each represents another step in the maturation of humanity. If we trace the course of these stories, we can discover a connection that goes deeper than chronology, a developmental line in the narrative of the evolution of humanity. The first story is about Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. Once they have eaten and discovered shame, God asks them what they have done in Genesis 3, 11 through 13. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put, me, put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, 
the serpent deceived me and I ate. Faced with primal failure, Rabbi Sachs writes, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent. Both deny personal responsibility. It wasn't me, he writes, it wasn't my fault. This is the birth of what today is called the victim culture. The second drama is about Cain and Abel. Both bring offerings. Abel's is accepted, Cain's is not. Why this is not is so why this is so is not relevant here, he writes. In his anger, Cain kills Abel. Again, there is an exchange between a human being and God. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Once again, the theme is responsibility, but in a different sense. Cain does not deny personal responsibility. He does not say it wasn't me. He denies moral responsibility. I am not my brother's keeper. I am not responsible for his safety. Yes, I did it because I felt like it. Cain has not yet learned, Rabbi Sachs writes, the difference between I can and I may. The third story is the story of Noah. Noah is introduced with great expectations. In Genesis 5.29, Noah's father, Lamach, says he will comfort him. That's the root of the Hebrew. This is the one to redeem man's failure, to offer comfort for the earth which God had cursed. Yet though Noah is a righteous man, the text tells us he was righteous in his generation, he is not a hero. Noah does not save humanity. He saves only himself, his family, and the animal he takes with him in the ark. The Zohar, the great medieval text of the Kabbalah mysticism, contrasts him unfavorably with Moses. Moses prayed for his generation. Noah did not. In the end, his failure to take responsibility for others diminishes him as well. In the last scene, we see him drunk and exposed in his tent. In the words of the rabbinic Midrash, he profaned himself and became profaned. One cannot be a sole survivor and still survive. Let everyone who can save himself is not a principle of Judaism. We have to do what we can to save others, not just ourselves. So Noah failed the test of collective responsibility. Adam and Eve deny personal responsibility. Cain denies moral responsibility. And Noah fails the test of collective responsibility. The fourth story in this week's parasha is the enigmatic story of the Tower of Babel. The sin of its builders is unclear in the text. But it is indicated, Rabbi 
Sachs writes by two key words in the text. The story is framed beginning and end with the phrase, Kol Haaretz, the whole earth, 11.1 and 11.8. In between, there's a series of similar sounding words, Sham, there, Shem, name, Shemayim, heaven. The story of Babel, according to Rabbi Sachs, is a drama about the two key words in the first sentence of the Torah. In the beginning, God created heaven, Shemayim, and earth, Eretz. Heaven is the domain of God. Earth is the domain of man. By attempting to build a tower that would reach heaven, the builders of Babel were men trying to be like gods. The story seems to have little to do with responsibility and to be focusing on a different issue than the first three. However, not accidentally does the word responsibility discuss response and ability. The Hebrew, our equivalent, achrayut, comes from the word acher, meaning other. Responsibility, Rabbi Sachs writes, is always a response to something or someone. In Judaism, it means response to the command of God. By attempting to reach heaven, the builders of Babel were in effect saying, we're going to take the place of God. We're not going to respond to his law or respect his boundaries, not going to accept his otherness. We are going to create an environment where we rule, not God, where the other is replaced by self. Babel is the failure of ontological responsibility, the idea that something beyond us makes a call on us. What we see in Genesis 1 through 11 is an exceptionally tightly constructed four-act drama on the theme of responsibility and moral development, presenting the maturation of humanity as echoing the maturation of the individual The first thing Rabbi Sachs says we learn as children is that our acts are under our control, our personal responsibility. The next is not that everything we can do, we may do. Moral responsibility. The next stage in human development is the realization that we have a duty not just to ourselves, but to those on whom we have an influence, collective responsibility. Ultimately, We learn, as we grow older, that morality is not a mere human convention, but it is written into the structure of existence. There is an author of being. Therefore, there is an authority beyond mankind to whom, when acting morally, we respond. That is, as Rabbi Sachs calls it, ontological responsibility. This is developmental psychology as we have come to know it through the works of Jean Piaget, Eric Erickson, Lawrence Kohlberg, and Abraham Maslow. The subtlety and depth of the Torah is remarkable. It was the first and is still the greatest text on the human condition and our psychological growth from instinct to conscience. From dust of the earth to the morally responsible agent the Torah calls the image of God. Well, I've now shared with you two different perspectives on this week's Torah portion. It would have been wonderful 
to have had them here personally. But I want to interview one other person for you, and that's Rabbi James Jacobson Maisel. He's going to speak about one of the essential issues that emerges in the parasha. Noah versus Abraham, the person who follows immediately after him and has a conversation with God. He writes, Jewish tradition is famously ambivalent about Noah. While Noah is praised in this week's Torah's portion as a righteous man, blameless in his age, who walked with God, according to Rabbi Judah of the Midrash, Noah was precisely blameless in his age, but had he lived in future generations, he would not have been considered righteous. Similarly, while Noah walked with God, the Midrash suggests that this designation is less than that of Abraham, who walked before God. Where then is Noah's failing, and wherein lies the distinction between his character and Abraham's? Immediately after being introduced and told of his righteousness, we are informed in Genesis 6, the earth came corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with lawlessness. God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them I am about to destroy them with the earth. God sees evil prevalent in the world and decides to purge it and start again from one righteous individual. He informs Noah of his plans, and Noah faithfully exceeds, immediately constructing the ark. Noah is obedient, but surprisingly, in our text, unperturbed by the destruction of all life. His behavior, of course, is in stark contrast to Abraham. When Abraham is informed by God of God's intention to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which occurs in Genesis 18, Abraham says to God, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty, bargaining for the opportunity to save lives of the denizens of those towns of Sodom and Gomorrah? We see here the fundamental distinction between Noah and Abraham. Noah is obedient, he walks with God, but he makes no attempt to intervene. He simply saves himself from destruction. Abraham, on the other hand, acts to transform the situation. Though humble, Abraham is not content to merely be led. He confronts God, challenges the decree, and insists on involvement. Indeed, Abraham is active and involved from the beginning, converting the citizens of Haran to belief in one God. While Noah provides rescue and disaster relief, Abraham is involved in long, hard work of reconstruction and transformation. And we, Jews, the people of Israel, identify ourselves as descendants of Abraham, not Noah. It is Abraham who is our model and aspiration. Three different takes on this week's parasha. Three great rabbinic scholars who looked within the words of Torah to find great meaning. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this morning's broadcast on iTunes or on CHRI. 
i.ca website. If you wish to send us an email and ask questions about this morning or any other show, you can write to jff at chri.ca. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good morning and shalom. Oh